so it's completely wrong, I think, to ridicule Blockbuster for not buying Netflix, because at the time, $50 million sounded like a lot of money. But it's a bit like ridiculing that poor guy who turned down the Beatles, because mm. at the time, the Beatles were shit. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of I Love That Ad, a very special episode this week because we are joined not only by my co-pilot, my one and only Shane W. Brennan, but Hello. we're joined by the absolute legend that is Roy Sutherland, Vice Chairman at Ogilvy, author, speaker and absolute uh, advertising hero. Welcome to the podcast, Rory. Oh, it's a pleasure. What a great idea, by the way. Absolutely necessary. Not not often (laughs) you can say that about a podcast, but this is really necessary. Uh, Well, um, we we feel um, very honoured that, you know, off camera, you're telling us that you preferred coming on to this than Rick Rubin's uh, podcast. So that really was icing on the cake for us. That was a fa- that was fantastic. There were actually five hours recorded of that. And I think they ended oh. down to three and a half. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, and uh, when I was listening to that, it jumped straight in. So it felt like there's a lot more material we didn't hear because the a- episode started like almost mid conversation. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's uh, being Irish, of course, you'd appreciate the James Joyce approach where you just tail off in mid sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, try, try and keep up if you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, it's a it's a great honor to, to have you on, on the podcast. And uh, we, have, we have some lovely ads that, that you're, you're going to bring us through. Um, before we, we jump into the ads, um, I kind of wanted to, to 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 ask a bit about Nudstock and uh, that festival and kind of why why it's so important for for marketers and brands uh, that, that that you're running it uh, yet again and, and kind of such an emphasis on it. I think that in business, in policy making, in almost all areas of decision making, um, there are missing conversations. Either the conversations don't take place at all, or as is often the case with marketing, they take place too late. Mm-hmm. So that marketing, unless you're one of those sort of preeminent companies like PNG or Unilever, uh, which put marketing absolutely at the core of their existence, you know, the consumer is boss. Um, is the PNG mantra. Uh, it's very, very common for all organizations to effectively engage in technocratic decision making for as long as possible before you actually introduce the messy business of human psychology and behavior. And you either introduce it not at all in many cases because you're simply pursuing objective metrics that have been arbitrarily determined, like punctuality in trains or journey time. Okay, or if you do introduce the question of psychology, it's left right till the end, when in some cases it's too late to do anything about it or too late to make a significant difference. And and by the way, I think this problem is getting a lot worse. And I posted recently, I said that, uh, you know, the problem with the whole advertising industry is that media agencies now can make money out of media in the absence of creative. But creative agencies haven't worked out any complementary business models at all. They don't know how to make money from creative in the absence of media. Now, the reason that's a problem, except for media agencies, which probably make more money as a consequence, okay, is that previously when you spent money on media, you also spent money going through the whole process of making an ad. Okay. Now, this is a bold thing to say, but I feel emboldened in saying it because Jeremy Bullmore basically said exactly the same thing as did uh, Miles Young, uh, the former chief executive. The value of that ad ostensibly lies in the creative as it's presented to the consumer. Okay. And indeed, it does that's a very valuable thing to do but it's also quite an expensive thing to do a large part of the value of producing that ad actually derives from the process you go through in deciding what to say and who to say it to and the process is recursive it's messy it's kind of iterative but the byproduct of the process are really valuable insights And because we've used technology to to effectively short circuit the process so that you go straight from, you you automate, in many cases, I think in performance marketing, you effectively automate or delegate to a very junior person uh, the principle of writing, you know, a variety of headlines to test. 
without really questioning, are, are we sure we should be saying this? Why are we always discounting rather than trying to actually add perceived value? Without asking those questions, but without asking the host of other questions. Okay. How does your business objective actually translate into human behavior? What behaviors do we want to see from whom? What behavior is valuable? What behavior isn't? If you short circuit that process, it looks like an efficiency because you're getting straight from zero to finished ad by the use of AI. In fact, the value of the process is in the process itself. Now, I'll give you an example of this. OK, let's say you have a student using AI to write an essay. OK, well, if the objective is produce an essay, that probably produces a fairly good essay very, very quickly. OK, but has anybody ever reread one of their own student essays or a student essay by anybody else? I mean, seriously, you know, I mean, it, you know, you know, possibly if you're teaching like the young Wittgenstein or something, you might actually go back to some of the things he wrote. But nearly all, virtually all essays we wrote when we were students have all ended up in the trash. I have landfill. I have no idea where they are. Mm -hmm. And that's because actually the value was not in the essay. The value is in having to write it. It was the thought processes you went through in writing the thing. OK. And the essay was merely proof that you'd been through those thought processes. It's a bit like, I think it's Albert Camus who said, I write to discover what I think. You know, the process of writing aids mental clarity. OK. And what we're doing, it's a version of the doorman fallacy where you define the value of a doorman in a hotel as opening the door. And a consulting firm comes in and goes, your doorman's costing you £25,000 a year or whatever it may be, or if they're on shifts, it's more. Uh, and we're going to replace it with an automatic door opening mechanism and we're going to lay claim to the savings. OK. But it turns out that the value of a doorman is only very peripherally about opening the door. That's his ostensible function. The real value of a doorman is status, security, gossip, recognition of valuable guests, all manner of stuff, right? And you suddenly realise that in the short term, yes, you've had an efficiency gain and you, you're now £25,000 a year better off, okay? But actually your hotel's gone to shit. And exactly the same thing is happening in advertising where the very, very narrow definition of what is the purpose, oh, we need to produce an ad and we need to put it somewhere, okay? Uh, in seeking to gain efficiency, we're effectively entering a world which we've already entered, actually, which is very, very insight light. In other words, the real cost of that efficiency, the opportunity cost, is the insights you not necessarily, you know, that the ad isn't as good, although it probably isn't. It's also the insights you haven't gleaned in the process of arriving at that outcome. And that it's a little similar, okay, you know, that, you know, the great thing about autopilots is they do what a pilot does, but where they're very shrewd in airlines is they still do a hell of a lot of pilot training on flight simulators, because otherwise the pilots basically lose basic flying skills. Okay, mm. or that when the autopilot cuts out because there's some conflict in the airspeed monitoring system, you suddenly hand over control to the pilot, they panic or don't know what to do. And it's a similar thing, which is automation. Sometimes the effort, the fact that something is effortful and inefficient, that's the whole point. OK, mm -hmm. you know, writing a student essay isn't supposed to be easy. You know, producing creative for an ad isn't supposed to be quick and easy. And I would even go as far as to argue, you know, it might be very, very, very valuable for B2B businesses. Even if you don't have much of a media budget, go and produce an ad campaign, even if it's never going to run because the insights and focus you'll gain through the act of having to produce such a campaign may be more valuable than actually running the campaign. And is, 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 that, a, is that a particular area of concern for both the marketer's journey as well as the creative agency? So they're, they're both on the same page. Yes, because, because again, it's a loss of time and conversation. Um, you know, I, I often teasingly say to account people, you should measure your success not by the income you bring in or the, you know, the hours you manage to bill, but by the number of high quality conversations you facilitate at the right place and at the right time. That's if you are optimizing an agency around value rather than profit, and it's a terrible thing to optimize an agency around profit because the way we make money is basically totally orthogonal to the value we create okay we make money in time consuming things we add value in you know 
five second flashes. But we also add value for our clients by simply facilitating those conversations with our clients and forcing those clients, forcing them is probably too extreme a word, but encouraging those clients to devote a certain amount of their time to asking sort of second and third order questions about what's really going on in the market. And Rory, would would, would it be too much to say that that's where you feel the the future of the agency is? So like we know that for the last couple of years, creative agencies globally have been put under a lot of pressure, not only from global uh well, well of course forces. i mean the, sh the short-term pressure makes it very difficult to innovate because innovation is generally costly in the short term and if you have a bunch of people who are obsessed with basically you know meeting their third quarter target it's pretty difficult to get them to listen to do uh, to the idea about doing anything different but i think the agency business model is doomed because creative agencies have only worked out one way of making money which is billable hours okay mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the business with the eye of any kind of investor, there are no network effects, okay, and there are no residual effects. They're, you know, client conflict meant that effectively, you know, you have to have a fresh idea every time, and and it's quite right that if you're looking to differentiate brands, doing that consulting trick of just working your way through a category selling the same solution to every business one after the other, okay, which is the kind of residual effect. OK, we don't really have that, not in our most valuable work. OK, and we don't really have network effects, by which I mean, is it solve one cell some of the time? You know, if you look at a toothpaste manufacturer, they put a lot of work into designing a tooth, a great toothpaste, but then they manufacture a million tubes of the stuff and sell it to lots of people. Now, I think I think there is an opportunity for agencies to do that. I think there's also an opportunity for agencies to start talking at the category level. And actually, you know, almost feed webinars where they share insights and encourage discussion about category problems, not just individual brand problems, because that's something that really worries me. OK, which is that nearly all budgets are brand budgets. You know, most marketing budgets sit at the brand level, but a lot of modern day problems are category problems. You know, so if you take the example of car electrification, there are a lot of problems there, I would argue, more psychological than they are practical. In fact, I'd say range anxiety, the clues in the yeah. word anxiety is really a psychological problem. And uh, regardless of whether you're Ford or Tesla or anybody else. The way to solve that problem might be informationally, OK, rather than uh, through engineering and technology. So, uh, OK, there are two words, range, OK, which is a product of the size of the battery, the efficiency of the car, et cetera, the weight of the car. And there's anxiety, which is psychological. Now, you know, one, one of the problems is very simple, which is petrol stations are very visible mm -hmm. because they have to be on major thoroughfares and they're fucking massive. OK, and they have a big sign saying BP in a branch of Marks and Spencer Simply Foods and electric car chargers are smaller than the phone box. I mean, they're just a post. OK, and they don't have to be on a major thoroughfare. In fact, you don't want them on a major thoroughfare because you want them to be somewhere where people can park. Mm -hmm. OK, now, you know, if you went to Google and said, basically, can we have a mode in Apple CarPlay or Android Auto where when you're driving along, as soon as you're below 70 percent, let's say it continuously nudges you and says there's an opportunity to charge five miles ahead because the Waitrose has an available car charger. Pretty quickly, you'll go, actually, you know, unless you're driving in the north of Scotland or some, you know, different in America, I accept that, okay. You're going to go, actually, this isn't really a problem. There are charges all over the shitting place, right? But you don't see them. And, um, you know, that that's just a very, you know, just a very, and secondly, you need a change in mentality, which is that when you have a gasoline car, <clears throat> refueling is a distress purchase. Oh, shit, the red lights come on. I better buy some petrol, Okay. With an electric car, you need to change the mentality so that the, the act of charging or refueling for an electric car is kind of opportunistic. Well, I'm at 70% already, but look, I need to go to that shop or that cafe and there's a charger outside, so I might as well plug in while I'm here, okay? Or, you know, I'm at home now, I've just got home, I might as well plug in at home. You need to change it effectively from being a, you know, a, a kind of distress purchase, which you make grudgingly when necessary, to one you make opportunistically. And so the important point about this is that um, 
because most budgets are brand budgets, you know, you'll get a budget from Ford or you might get a budget from, you know, um, Volkswagen or whatever, whoever your client is, to look at the electric car problem. One brand at a time, the solution is to make your car's range bigger and bigger and boast about it. Mm -hmm. By the act of boasting about range, you may actually be compounding the problem of anxiety, which is, you know, uh, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. You know, if they keep banging on about range, range must be really important. But on how many days, I, yeah, I may be wrong. I mean, you may commute daily from the west of Ireland to Dublin, but I doubt it, okay? Uh, you know, on how many days do you actually drive more than 142 miles or whatever? It's pretty few, yeah. you know? And so so th these are these questions where, I've, unfortunately, there are these huge, huge swathes of decision making in organizations and institutions, which are effectively insight free, they're psychology free. And there are other reasons for that. I mean, it's the status of marketing within the organization. Marketing is generally the only part of the organization which is kind of given the brief of asking these what if questions. You know, every every other part of the organization is just efficiency optimizing based on past data. And we've got to do the opposite. We've got to effectively optimize for effectiveness based on a future we don't yet know. Mm. But it, but it is it it does really really concern me. By the way, you know, um, most organisations that succeed then downplay the role that marketing played in their success, because you know Steve Jobs was fucking marketer don't pretend he was a technologist he didn't know shit about technology <laughs> i mean seriously sorry yeah yeah, yeah. But, but i mean i mean you know the geeky people in apple used to say i don't get what steve like does i mean he can't even code right i remember the time the ipod came out which was really the most important device because it was the precursor of the iphone you know the iphone the first iphone was basically mm -hmm. an ipod that made calls and you went on to the kind of Apple obsessive tech websites and it was full of people going, yeah, like just what the world needs, another MP3 player. You know, Steve has really lost it. Okay, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, James Watt, I always tell this story, which I think is wonderful, that James Watt is uh, obviously an absolutely brilliant inventor, albeit he discovered kind of steam power by accidental observation. But he also invented the horsepower to sell steam engines because he realized nobody cared about cylinder size and bore stroke mm -hmm. length and all that sort of stuff. Okay. What they cared about is if I buy a steam engine for my mine, how many horses do I not need to feed anymore? Yeah. Okay. So what was shrewd enough to say, okay, we're using the wrong metrics here. We're using the metrics of engineering and we need to use the metrics of mine owners. And he invented a unit, the horsepower, which is still miraculously in use today. That's unreal. Which yeah. is, which is, you know, and that's, and uh, one, that's why one of my favorite ads isn't an ad. Um, it's effectively um, uh, uh, Netflix. Who now this comes into a category which P and G call commercial innovation, and it's effectively innovating not with the actual product, which was at the time DVDs by post. Okay, mm -hmm. it was innovating with the pricing formula. And so this thing of three DVDs, change them as often as you like, $19.95 a month, I think it was, no late fees ever, okay? They came to that late. When Blockbuster refused to buy Netflix, which was a DVD by post rental business, okay? When Blockbuster refused to buy Netflix for $50 million, a decision for which they've been, you know, routinely ridiculed and lambasted, okay? um netflix hadn't come up with that formula and they were just one of a number of you know you know you can rent dvds by post mm -hmm. and it was only when they said no late fees ever change as often as they like which was a risky decision because theoretically if everybody decided to watch a film a night you'd be losing an absolute fortune but they took this risk on human and behavioral inertia which is that yeah in the first month people will probably watch seven films but by month three they'll be watching two you know mm -hmm. and we can make money on that which is subsequently what turned turned out to happen there's a better way to rent movies as many as you want for just 20 bucks a month and no late fees go to netflix.com make a list of the movies you want to see and in about one business day, you'll get three DVDs. Keep them as long as you want, without late fees. Then when you're done, look, prepaid envelopes. Return one, and they'll send you another movie from your list. It's easy.
Netflix. All the movies you want, 20 bucks a month and no late fees. Okay, they took this risky bet, effectively. And um, uh, that was after they'd gone to Blockbuster and asked for $50 million. In fact, they did it as a kind of desperation. Now, Blockbuster could have replicated the service, you know, in their sleep. You know, it's just basically go and buy a digital printer and a thing that will print addresses on DVDs. It's not a, you know, and a company by a return envelope. It's not a big deal. It's not a difficult thing to do. Um, but that that in itself wasn't the distinguishing feature. It was actually how you decided to price for the thing. And the reason I think that's important, by the way, is I think the entire media industry is killing itself with its addiction to monthly subscription. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, genuinely that because they've totally failed to experiment with micropayments, you know, pay for a day's free access for a quid. A friend of mine, Dominic Young from a company called Axate says there uh, maybe there's one exception in Finland, but there's not a single tabloid newspaper, okay, which has made a success of the subscription model. And the simple reason is that, you know, not many people subscribe to Pret, okay, you can subscribe to Pret and you get unlimited free well not quite unlimited but you know sort of free coffee and you know mm -hmm. fairly regular amounts some people if you're right next door if your office is right next door to a pret it's probably a pretty good idea you know but not many people subscribe and a lot of people it's not because of the actual cost value proposition it's just because of psychology they don't like the commitment and in the case there of subscribing to newspapers people don't want to buy the sun one month at a time because mm -hmm. the sun is like a packet of cigarettes it's like a packet of crisps to an extent although people do buy crisps in multi-packs if they have a family, okay? But people basically buy those things on impulse, which is, well, I'm going to pop into the shop. Ooh, I might as well have a packet of fags and a cup, you know. You know, well, now, okay, okay, people buy fewer cigarettes now. It might be vapes. But those things are impulse purchases, you know. Mm. I don't buy 30 vapes at a time or whatever. Mm. You buy them as and when you need them, and that's typically how we buy coffee, you know. You could probably if start save a lot of money, Rory, if you started bulk buying them. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> the one exception is duty free, where people do bulk buy cigarettes. Yes. Okay. But <clears throat> you know, there are mental modes in which you feel comfortable buying things. It's highly contextual. And that's the real lesson of behavioral science is that context really matters. Mm -hmm. And that people have an emotional context around a decision. They have a framing of how the information is presented. Okay. And um, those things are really, really decisive in your success. So it's completely wrong, I think, to ridicule Blockbuster for not buying Netflix, because at the time, $50 million sounded like a lot of money. But it's a bit like ridiculing that poor guy who turned down the Beatles, because mm. at the time, the Beatles were shit. <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> I mean, if you look at the demo tape they played to that poor guy, who's, you know, he's dead now, but he was, you know, he spent his whole life, despite the fact that he was the guy who admittedly on a tip off from George Harrison, he was the guy who signed the Rolling Stones. Okay. <laughs> you could just argue, if you're a Stones fan, you just argue that's because he had superior musical taste. Yeah, exactly. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, park, I'll park that one. Okay? <laughs> otherwise, otherwise I'll get Beatles fanatics, basically, you know, with death threats outside my home. But the poor, you know, the poor guy, if you look at what they played, it was all covers I think there was one original song which even total Beatles fanboys never bothered to listen to or, you know, and there was no evidence at the time that uh, the Beatles were going to be a great band, except in the mind of probably Brian Epstein, who just saw something there that nobody else could see. And um, in fact, there's a famous story that Brian Epstein took one of his mates to see the Beatles at the Cavern Club and then took him out to dinner afterwards and said, well, what, what be candid, be honest with you. I'm thinking of signing them. What do you think? And he said, Well, Brian, I said, I'll be absolutely honest. I thought they were shit. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> and Brian said, Yeah, I think so too. But I think <laughs> I, I think they can really be something. Okay. Amazing. You know, this is the problem with data-driven decision making. Okay. You're only looking at the past. Mm. And that's why, in a rather elegant loop, I've come back to that question of insights, which is you suddenly spot something which is this isn't true at the moment but it could be true. Mm, and and I, if you're obsessed with sort of data analysis, you'll never get to that kind of Brian Epstein point of supreme um, insight. And, and that, that insight then, and, and this this kind of, it's not even an ad, it's just, it's more of 
of a, of, of a, uh, a company's strategy and changing. And, and as a result Absolutely. of that strategy, they change the entire industry uh, as, as a result. So it's kind of those insights that you, you spoke about from the start of this podcast, that's kind of seen it through all the way, the, the effect that they, they can have. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. That actually, you know, understanding, I'll give you a, a parallel example, which is now current to the Netflix case, which is, oh, there's a wonderful discovery, by the way, Netflix continued to experiment. And one of them was a cheaper price point, which was one DVD a month. Okay. Um, one DVD a month for like $9.99, <laughs> replace it as often as you like. And that didn't work, even though it was cheaper, because of something they called brilliantly the Hotel Rwanda effect. Okay. Now, if you remember, I think it was Hotel Rwanda, which was basically a film about genocide. Okay. Yeah. But you can imagine something like Schindler's List. In other words, sometimes on your wish list, a film would come in and you'd get sent it, which was, let's say, a bit of a downer, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, it's a really great and important film, but it's not something for date night. Okay. Right. right. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then what would happen is people get stuck not watching that for about eight weeks and they decide this Netflix thing is a waste of time. Whereas if you had three DVDs at any one time, yeah, they might have a copy of Hotel Rwanda, which was sitting there waiting for the moment when they wanted serious cinema. But they also had a copy of, you know, there's something about Mary and they watched that, had a great laugh and then sent it back and got some other jolly film. And mm. so you didn't get that crunch point. And so that kind of shit, you know, is just, I, I mean... Really, it should be catnip to businesses because your chance of making money really does not come in being more efficient than your competition. If you want to make money that way, it's fine, but it's a race to the bottom. Only one person can win, and it's generally Michael O'Leary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, right? Okay. You know, you know, you can't beat that, and you don't want to. You know, I remember talking to someone at a, at a you know. Uh, who explained why they effectively did advertising. And they said, because there are two ways of running a mobile phone network. And one of them is you compete only on price and your headquarters are in a porter cabin and we don't want to work in a porter cabin, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, Amazing. And so... So I think I think this is I think I think this whole question of exploration, experimentation, but also looking for the psychological arbitrage opportunity. In other mm. words, what if we could get people to care about this rather than that? Mm. Okay. And, and could uh, I put, uh, yeah, carry on. Yeah. Could I put it to you, Rory, that that kind of innovation that Netflix showed there and, and kind of yeah. the disruption that came out of a desperation because they were they were already desperate when they went to Blockbuster and that's it's a legendary story. I imagine I imagine the finance director was having kittens at the idea of replace yeah. these three films as often as you like because there was the risk. Now bear in mind you can test that at a limited scale to a degree. You can't test it perfectly because it's not the same until you have kind of TV advertising promoting it to normalize it. But you can at least test, you know, does this chime with more people than our previous propositions? Great book, by the way, Alex Hormozzi, $100 million offers. How to make offers so good your customers feel dumb saying no. And um, uh, that's, you know, a large part of that, because it's quite B2B focused, is exactly about this whole question of pricing, charging, and, and the proposition, which is an area where the ad industry, the creative ad industry, desperately needs to experiment but for reasons of kind of short-termism has with one exception failed to do so there is a company i think called huge michael farmer's next latest book is called madison avenue makeover it's the sequel to madison avenue manslaughter and it is about an agency that tried effectively um outcome-based pricing or um uh, what you might call package-based pricing rather than hours-based pricing and um, uh, but but actually that kind of you know P and G being the smartest tools in the box generally have a guy they had a famous guy who was the head of commercial innovation, and the whole point was there's R and D that's making the actual product better okay mm -hmm. and that's expensive it's really important and they do it really really well but God it's expensive right you've got to go through all these testing and approval procedures and regulatory approvals and hurdles but then there's the kind of experimentation which is let's sell really small bottles of shampoo at airports which is an innovation where you don't actually change the product itself you just change the the nature of the value exchange with the consumer i always have this very weird form of shopping which i call um airbnb shopping 
okay where you arrive in an airbnb and you realize there aren't enough kind of washing machine pods and there aren't enough dishwasher tablets and so you basically go around the shop trying to buy everything in the smallest quantity available because <laughs> you don't want to leave it behind and you don't want to take it home you know what i mean and yeah, so you know, that, yeah. you know there's a certain mode in which people shop which is <laughs> oh brilliant these are really fucking expensive but there are only 10 of them <laughs> okay yeah, right? yeah, yeah. okay and, you know, then, you know, some people shop in that mode where they'd almost pay more for 10 than they would for 20. Not quite, but, you know, mm. OK. And so commercial innovation, you know, obviously, you know, pay as you go is commercial innovation for mobile phones as distinct from a contract. Uh, and it's the failure to actually introduce the equivalent of pay as you go, which is killing the entire newspaper industry and will kill the streaming services if they aren't careful. OK. You know, there's a limit to how many direct debits a human can have while still remaining sane. OK, simple, <laughs> yeah. simple problem. there. And then, you know, one of the greatest of all time, literally one of the goats in terms of commercial innovation is Amazon Prime, which, by the way, was something which everybody but Jeff Bezos hated. And Jeff Bezos just rammed it through. Mm. It's, um, it's funny when you say about the subscription model, it only happened to me the other night where I subscribe to Paramount Plus to watch the new South Park movie. Got it. But I'm all, I'm that's all I'm watching. So I paid seven. I was sitting there with my, my brother and I was like, I want to watch this, but I don't want to bother hooking up the laptop and stuff like that. So I was like, I'll just buy it on the TV. But I was like, is it worth $7.99 for 45 minutes of this that everyone's talking about? I was like, yes, it is. And I'll cancel it straight after. And I was like, so if they like absolutely no, and I do it on YouTube as well with films. Sometimes if I can't find it, the copywriting is out on the different streaming processes and YouTube has everything. And it's like $2.99 to rent for 30 days. Yeah. yeah. 100%. I just want to watch it now. What's $2.99? It's not What's even a $2.99? Yeah. Absolutely. By the way, I will say that YouTube premium is one of the best things you can buy. It tends to be considered a bit of an outlier, but everybody who gets it, it's one of those things I call an air fryer product, which is no one wants it until they have it. <laughs> I think it also comes from uh, it comes from the fact that a lot of people get to feel like they're experienced YouTube anyway. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Netflix, you can't have Netflix exactly. if you don't subscribe. Whereas a lot of people have grown up on YouTube and they're like, why would I pay for this? This is this is meant to be free. You know what I mean? It's like if they started, it's mm -hmm. like what Elon was trying to do with Twitter when he was trying to charge and then mm -hmm. Facebook or so Instagram became chargeable. There'd be a generation of people would be like, oh, I don't pay for this. No, <laughs> I mean, Facebook would be a lot better if you did pay for it, I think. Actually. It would be. Oh, no, a lot of services I think would, could but really by the, benefit from it. By the way, a really interesting thing there's in The Economist, which suddenly makes sense to me, which is, if you look at kind of the mixture of balanced opinion and extremist opinion on different mm -hmm. social media sites, um, and they particularly measured, I think, coverage of the, um, effectively the Gaza conflict. Mm -hmm. Okay. And trust me, I'm not saying anything there because you can't. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm just saying, okay. Right. I'm being a total coward in a sense, but that's partly because my opinion is it's complicated. And as soon as you qualify anything, a chunk of people become really angry with you, which is the mm. worst possible environment for discussion. You know, as soon as you add a but or on the other hand, <laughs> you'll have a bunch of people going absolutely ballistic at you. So yeah. I, I just, you know. People want full stops. It's Yates, isn't it? What is it? The yeah. things fall apart, the future cannot hold. The um, the wise lack all conviction and other people are full of a passionate intensity. <laughs> right? Okay. Idiot, you know. And so you have this absurd division of kind of opinion, which is basically basically WB Yates predicting social media. But YouTube, <laughs> of all the media, is comparatively sane, extremist mm. opinion. And obviously you get the odd Jihar Hardy video here or, you know, whatever. Okay, But the bulk of opinion, it's like 80 something percent, is actually measured coverage. And of course, it struck me that the reason for this is that it takes time and effort, which gets me back to our original point, which is the effort is the value. It takes time and effort to make a high quality film about something. And in the process of putting in that effort, you're going to think about it a bit. OK. Mm -hmm. And in the act of thinking about it a bit, you're probably going to qualify your opinions and it's longer form and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. But it also requires you to set up some microphones, and, you know, and maybe have a bit of a discussion rather than just a one way rant, which is the complete opposite of sending a tweet, which is yeah. just knee jerk. Bleh, OK. Yeah. And um, so it's it, it it's kind of, uh, I, you know, I think I, I, I really do praise that. But getting back to the subscription question, you know, it's um, 
greater experimentation with other forms of payment. I mean, I was talking to people at the GB Rail transition team and saying, look, you know, basically off-peak rail journeys on a train that isn't full, if you can create an incremental journey out of anybody, it's basically pure money because you've got to run the train anyway, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, if you're not careful, you're basically, you know, shunting fresh air around the countryside. And I go, you know, the potential for things like, you know, Tuesday, I don't know, Monday and Friday, which are dead days for trains, perhaps. OK, you just go, OK, as a pensioner, you can buy this 500 pound a year product like a kind of Amazon Prime for trains. Mm -hmm. And on Monday and Friday on off peak trains on, you know, on, maybe it's just on, on the six less least busy trains a day because you're retired. You don't give a shit by what time of day you go right? on the six less least busy trains a day. You can travel for a fiver or a tenner. Right mm -hmm. now. That's, you know, the tenner is £10 you wouldn't otherwise have, and you've got the 500 quid for the rail card. The potential for that kind of thing in terms of driving behaviour. I mean, one of my little claims to fame is I was the kind of co-inventor of EasyJet Plus, which is their kind of, you pay once a year, and then you get, I think, I don't think you get free checked-in baggage, but you get free speedy boarding, and you get free upfront seating or whatever it is. But you get a chunk of things which people find irritating paying for if they're frequent users of the product. That's the thing with Amazon Prime, okay? People who order from Amazon once a month don't, wouldn't really care about paying £2.50 for delivery. But if you order... 20 times a month, okay, uh, it starts to piss you off, even if yeah. you're really rich. You know, you go, oh, fuck, here we go, I'm paying another, you know, that's £30 in delivery charges. They're things that we prefer to pay for once up front mm -hmm. and then enjoy multiple savings. And there are things like cigarettes and tabloid newspapers, which we prefer to pay for one at a time. And I don't know why that is psychologically, but that's how it works. T talking about psychology, one of my favorite things to do in the world when I'm sitting in an airport is watch who queues for the plane mm -hmm. from a psychological perspective and judge them and just see what how many bags are they carrying? Do they have kids with them? Do they not? I wonder no. where they're going and trying to assess what is causing them. They have their number booked. They have it like, are no, they no, worried? No, no, it's no, so a much part, fun. A part of it is the terror that your uh, luggage won't get in the Oof, overhead locker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's I'm for that reason. Now, that is actually a problem created by the airlines by charging too much for checked-in luggage. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I ended up flying out to Athens with Mark Reed, the CEO of WPP. He's a fantastic guy. But I committed the absolutely heinous kind of crime in FTSE CEO world of checking in my luggage. You know, if you're kind of, you know, if you're one of those sort of masters of the universe, you have your little wheelie thing. Yeah, the perfect the size. Locker, yeah. The perfect size. You probably have two, don't you? One for long haul, one, you know. Yeah. And um, I always check in my luggage. So I just go, when I get to the airport, I don't want to be wheeling some shit around and, mm. you know. And and um, but this was like this was you know this was like the major social gaffe. The only thing I, I was sitting next to him on the flight. The only thing I think I could have done, which would have embarrassed him more, was clapping when the plane landed. <laughs> you know, other than that, I don't think there was any worse crime I could have committed than checking in my own luggage. But then what happens is everybody is desperate to get their luggage in the overhead locker, and this slows down boarding to an mm -hmm. extent which is painful. But then you have this thing which is. If you've got any whole luggage, we'll check it in for you for free, which also delays boarding. And I suspect causes a whole load of people to game the system. OK, now the way to solve this with commercial, I think, with commercial innovation. And I told EasyJet this, they didn't fucking listen. They said, make it at least, OK, at least make it £10 to check in one piece of luggage or whatever, £25 to check in one piece of luggage, uh, £28 for up to three. OK, so the people who are checking one thing in anyway, OK, will go, well, I'm checking in that fucking great suitcase because we're off to Torremolinos. And so I might as well just check in the other two bags as well so we can go through the airport unencumbered and whatever. Mm -hmm. OK, and they haven't done that. So everybody, you get the Ryanair thing where people are wearing three layers of clothing, basically, onto the plane, you know, to minimise their kind of check baggage costs. And I, I, I think they, I think they shot themselves in the foot in the same way. I think newspaper subscriptions and some streaming service subscriptions, not YouTube, actually, because it's quite easy to cancel because it's Google. OK, mm -hmm. <laughs> but a lot of them do this sludge thing where it's really easy to subscribe for your free trial offer of four weeks or whatever it is, or your massively discounted three months of, you know, your Wall Street Journal subscription or your economy subscription. And then you try and cancel. OK, 
and you've got to make a phone call to Kazakhstan or something, right? They made it really, really easy to sign up, really, really difficult to cancel. Even more difficult, if it's a direct debit, you can just go onto your online banking and go cancel this direct debit. If it's a credit card recurring payment, well, God help you, right? Um, because you can't just, you know, you can't just go on your credit card website and go mm -hmm. cancel this recurring payment. Because legally, personally, I think that's something the government should get involved in. I think the government should make should mandate that recurring credit card payments are flagged on your credit card statement, and that you can actually cancel them with a click. Because I think it, I think it's it's um, predatory. But in fairness, okay, who also suffers from this is the actual companies themselves, because so many of these uh, pu publications have practiced what's called sludge. It's like nudging for bad. Okay. Mm -hmm. That it actually basically means that everybody's frightened to take out a trial subscription. Unless you're totally naive, okay, and you've never subscribed to anything before, and you go, wow, it's a three-month trial offer, okay. Mm. Everybody who's had one of those bad experiences basically goes, never again. And so eventually your potential market is just shrinking and shrinking as more and more people have had a bad experience, not necessarily with you, but with someone else. Unbelievable. Um, there's... I think with with the Netflix example, that was probably from from every episode we've done. And Shane, we're we're coming up on a hundred and fourth or hundred and fortieth episode. Yeah, we're that was the most there. seamless transition from intro of the podcast into, into the actual into ad, the ad <laughs> itself. So I have to I have to call that out, Rory. There was Mercedes Lucky Star, wasn't there? By Campbell. Yes, let's go for Mercedes Lucky Star. So we're gonna we're gonna have a quick look at this now, and then we're gonna come back and chat about it. Perfect. Fifteen minutes, he flipped five positions on the Chicago Commodities Exchange, unloaded Malaysian tin ore, and made three trades in Hong Kong. You know, it's tanking, man. It's tanking. Don't unload it until I say the magic four-letter word. Sell. He played the markets. He defied the odds. But no one could guess his game. It happened again today. He shorted two stocks that crashed and bought an IPO nobody wanted. It's up 84%. So? So what? There's nothing. No inside trading, no fraud. Oh, yeah! So are you working tonight? He had no past they could trace. Explain to me what's going on. I can't. No fear of losing. Come on. Come on. The one thing he did have was anything he wanted. Luck can run out, you know? That can be arranged. They were right here in the house. There is no network, no accomplices. He's acting alone. I got as much in this guy as I do on the Easter Bunny. NSA, FBI, Epic Database, nothing. Giving money to a 27-year-old woman. He's referred to her as his grandmother. He posed the one question they couldn't ignore. How could any one man be absolutely right? All the time. man epic absolutely so you had michael mann benicio del toro what is astounding about this i can be quite brief about this is that i think the original plan might have been to actually make the film and to use it as a vehicle for mercedes product placement mm -hmm. but it's a mercedes ad masquerading as an ad for a film a film which rather sadly never, never actually turned out but doesn't matter okay that the film never got made it's an extraordinary thing which in a sense, okay, the person who explains why this is brilliant is um, uh, a very unfashionable marketer called Joseph Goebbels, who 
said that the most powerful form of persuasion is when you're not aware you're being persuaded. And so the only yeah. clue to Mercedes involvement in it is this is the title Lucky Star, which refers to the Mercedes logo. Mm -hmm. OK, and um, what is fascinating about it is that it's effectively product placement in an ad, the ad ostensibly being for something other than the car, but it does a brilliant job of advertising the car in a completely it, it's advertising in its most oblique. You know, and by the way, for prestige brands, you have to advertise obliquely, okay? Mm -hmm. Because what you're really trying to say, okay, uh, can't be said directly. In other words, this will make you look rich and successful. The second you say that as a prestige brand, you've lost, right? Yeah. So you spend your whole time as any kind of prestige brand having to say what you want. I mean, another example is the Economist campaign. I never read the Economist management trainee, age 42, okay? Now, what you're actually saying there, okay is actually reading the economist will make you more successful at your job but if you say that directly it's kind of a really naff almost self-cancelling proposition because if you need to say it's a bit like that famous phrase you know the second you say you're a design classic you, you know you, you've lost you know there are certain things which you can only demonstrate you can't lay claim to that being funny okay you you know you can't you can't actually go on stage and say i am funny the only way you can do that is by telling a joke and the only way you can be a prestige brand is by manifesting the qualities of prestigeness now the economists use humor to get away with it which is if you say it obliquely in a joke you can say things which you can't say straight okay and so that obliqueness, you know, David Ogilvy, in a sense, OK, David Ogilvy's fame rests on the fact that he was probably the first man to crack how to sell posh brands to Anglophile, waspy New Englanders, you know, and others, OK, in the United States in a way that effectively uh, built a prestige brand for, if you look at it, OK, Hathaway shirts, Rolls Royce, OK, Guinness, uh, Schweppes, um, uh, I think uh, uh, the English Tourist Board. Okay, uh, an awful lot of his early clients were these prestigious clients, and he just worked out how to sell things in an urbane way that didn't feel like you're being hawked to. I always remember there's a lovely story about a guy who went around luxury car dealerships, and he gave bonus marks to the Jaguar dealership because when it came to say came came to asking the price, he was the only person who didn't proceed the sentence with "You're talking about." OK, you're talking about 55,000 plus. OK, and the Jaguar guy didn't say you're talking about. And, it, you know, that's kind of like additional prestige ranking marks. Yeah. OK, and um, David Ogley worked out a way to do advertising, which basically said things without the you're talking about, you know, the kind of, mm. you know, the slight, you know, the slight self-cancelling naffness that comes if you sell too hard. OK, you've got to do it obliquely. Because you can't like you can't say I am prestigious, okay. Mm. And, and so what 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 did, what also interests me about that ad is that it didn't win many awards, even though it was a genuine breakthrough. And this is something I think we have to be conscious of with awards. John Hegarty said the same thing, which is that really really great breakthrough work isn't actually loved by everybody. Some people love it, some people don't get it or or get annoyed by it. Mm. And the problem with an awards jury is they're an aggregate, okay. Now, if you have Dave Trott on your awards jury, Dave Trott is six times more influential than everybody else because he gives everything either 10 or naught. Yeah. <laughs> and Dave Trott's, good, argument, yeah. Dave Trott's argument is, by the way, and this drove apparently he was on an awards jury with David Abbott and it drove David Abbott practically insane. Okay, <laughs> I, kind of, I shouldn't say this, but I kind of admire Dave Trott for, for this. Okay. I believe and, it. And Dave Trott's logic is, look, it either deserves an award or it doesn't. If it deserves yeah. an award, I give it 10. If it doesn't, I give it naught. But of yeah. course, Dave Trott then carries five times more more influence than all the people who are going seven eight seven point five yeah six and a half yeah blitzes in with ten zero zero okay Love fantastic it. i mean you know you know he's one of the world's greatest game theorists as well as being one of the world's best yeah. advertising guys Unbelievable. But, but the problem he i mean in a way he's kind of right okay because when, when I was on the D, some, a, a parallel DNA D jury at the time that was being judged, and I went to the guy and I said, I, I'm definitely rude, but I don't understand why this hasn't won anything. Because you can say what you like about it, but it's first of all, it's a beautiful piece of felt. And secondly, it's unbelievably innovative. No one's done that before. And he said, well, yeah, we had this problem. He said half the people loved it and half the people didn't understand it. 
And I said, yeah. well, yeah, OK, we need to revise the voting system so that people have a kind of wild card or joker, which they can award to polarising yeah. pieces. So you know, if any four people want to play one of their three jokers for a particular ad, I think they should be allowed to do it. You know, not necessarily deciding yeah. what gets the very top award, but yeah. I think, you know, you should recognize those things. And I think there is that fundamental danger because, of course, in business, it's not like government where you're notionally trying to solve the problem for everybody. In business, you, if you can solve a problem for 20 percent of people, you've got a business. Mm. You know, it's why capitalism is in many ways successful. It's because it solves the same problem in many different ways for many different people under different contexts and circumstances. And what business, or sorry, what government tries to do is solve the same problem for a single representative and average agent who doesn't exist at all times and in all places. Okay, to borrow from the mm. communion service, right? You may not have that. <laughs> so don't forget this sectarian. So well, okay. But you know, um, <laughs> this is going to be the last um, episode of I love that ad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because it breaks down into that. Yeah. Um, Although I'm very surprised this won no awards because I actually came across this a couple of months ago because I was I was in the middle of a few debates with a few friends of mine about directors that had unbroken runs of good films so we were talking about Kubrick we were talking about Rob Reiner actually came yeah. up as like yeah. a really a really good run and we were looking at different runs and I ended up uh, on Hitchcock's Hitchcock's amazing in that front yeah, isn't it? exactly so you were yeah, looking at these I mean I always have this weird criterion for a film which is like a which is rewatchability. yeah I've only mm. watched Citizen Kane once it's always yeah. you know because you have to but, because you have to and I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, thought, I thought it was a great film Don't yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I thought it was a great film but I've never rewatched it. I um whereas I've rewatched, say, The Third Man or Goodfellas. Yeah. Just endlessly. Yeah, okay? yeah. And actually, there's you know additional rule. And actually, where where Hitchcock really scores is the percentage of his films which are rewatchable. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some of the films like Rear Window weren't particularly heralded at the time, but they've turned into these kind of you know enduring classics. classics. Yeah. You know, and Rear, Rear Window, the driving simplicity of the thing is just glorious. Okay, you know. Um, but Hitchcock and but the run of the run of great films is a really interesting point. Yeah, and that's on this one on Man, uh, Michael Mann. You go nineteen ninety two, Last of the Mohicans. Then he goes to Heat. Then The Insider. Then Ali. Then this short film. So that's how I came across this because we were looking yeah. at it. It Mercedes Lucky Star, and then onto Collateral, which is I love that film with Tom Cruise, yep. and then he hits a dud with Miami Vice, which is the remake with um, Colin, Colin Farrell. Farrell. Mm. And it was, was that run he was on with that starting with Last of the Mohicans, he was on a he was on a five coming up to a six, and then he skipped to Public Enemy. Then he went to TV. Then everything kind of starts to break down a little bit, and that's what you kind of see when you look at these directors' IMDb's. They hit one that doesn't hit the heights of. So what I was trying to say was that can happen with actors too. Oh, it happens all over the place, yeah, creatively, yeah, yeah. right? Mm. But he was just off Ali when he made this for Mercedes. So with regards to why I'm surprised he didn't win any awards. The hype around Michael Mann as a director coming yeah. off Heat Insider Ali, then this, and he's and it would have been in the 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 trades that he was in the middle of producing a Tom Cruise Jamie Fox assassin yes. film in two thousand and four. That I'm in shock that people didn't just throw awards at this. <laughs> do you know? Well, it's, uh, it's madness. Yeah, I mean there is a kind of you know you do get that kind of weird. Sorry, man. Bloody camera's going wonky. Uh, you, right. you, you do get this kind of weird conservatism in awards juries sometimes. You mm. also have a thing which is probably can being international mm. is very unfair to things which are targeted at a local audience. Mm. I, I was responsible both for good and ill because they consulted me when they first started the direct marketing awards. Okay, the 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 um, can direct mm -hmm. awards, and I said, look, I have to make one point here. You can't judge direct marketing out of context. OK, um, because uh, you need to know who the target audience is, what the particular problem is, because otherwise direct marketing being highly targeted is often highly context specific. And it's not like a TV commercial for detergent where you can basically go, yeah, audience is kind of like all people, you know, all, all yeah. detergent buyers. I get what it's about. It's telling you it's clean. Right. Direct marketing is like I mean, I remember. I remember someone brought me their book once or they showed me their book in, in, in when they weren't there. And there was a thing where farmers were offered in exchange for giving some data, free maps of their farm, ordnance survey maps of their farm. Okay. Like 23 maps. 
fucking weird promotion. <laughs> then, then I met the person who'd done the work, and they said, no, no, no I really dig, dug into this. And in order to get EU grants at the time, okay, when we were in the EU, uh, you had to like do loads of sort of, you had to send in loads of maps with, you know, what you're growing oh. arable here and you had cows here and sheep there. And it was a real pain in the ass for farmers. So sending them a load of maps was actually an incredibly useful and intelligent uh, promotion. Okay. But until you explain the actual context, it looks like whack, you know. Yeah, it looks crazy. <laughs> and, and so as a consequence, I think more and more ad. Uh, campaigns are judged according to what they're trying to do which i think mm. is a good thing for the most part because it prevents you unfairly you know but yeah. where i think we do lose is i always remember things there are a few things which were kind of the australians and the brits on the jury was something to do with cricket okay and basically everybody from a cricket playing nation thought it was really funny and everybody mm. from a non-cricket playing nation um didn't get it and so it was, you know, it was all around sledging. It was kind of Australian thing. Yeah. You had a kind of Shane Warne device that sat on top of your TV. And it was actually cool as hell. But I always, I always remember going, okay, we're never, you know, it's a pity, but we're never going to get this one through because, you know, the Latin Americans took one look at cricket and basically, yeah, right. you know, lost their <laughs> shit. And um, uh, so, you know, there, there are huge problems with the over-globalization of things. But, I mean, I think that context explanation does help a bit. Mm. Um, and... Um, I also said, you're going to hate me for this, okay? I also said, look, um, direct marketing agencies, the creative director can't just swan off to Cannes, spend 30,000 quid and swan back again four days later and not get into trouble. So I said, if you want to grow this festival, I said, you've got to get account handlers to come. And if you want account handlers to come, you've just got to get clients to come. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I told the Cannes organisers this. And now when I look down the croisette, I feel a bit like J. Robert Oppenheimer, you know, you have become <laughs> death, a destroyer of worlds. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. Um, but Roy, would you have time to go through your third ad? Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll do so, that. Uh, we have, uh, it's uh, Dos Equus, uh, the most interesting man in the world. Yeah. That, that's the campaign I would have most liked to have worked on, I think, just for pure self-indulgence, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it was beautiful because, um, I mean, you had this Hemingway-esque character. The whole thing was yeah. just gorgeously funny, okay. I mean, you, there were people, I mean, the other great thing is there were people like that. There's kind of Argentine playboy called Porfiro Ruberoso, who's, you know, and he, he actually died as you should die if you're one of those people, wrapping his Porsche around a tree on the Chasselis. <laughs> okay, right. There it um, is. <laughs> and, you know, I can, but what I really admire about that, which is a brilliant piece of behavioral science, okay, but it's also a brilliant bit of creativity, is every ad always tries to say, this product is brilliant and you should drink it all the time, okay? Now, if you're the most interesting man in the world, you're not going to stick to one brand, mm -hmm. okay, first of all. But secondly, it has this wonderful line at the end, okay, as well as stay thirsty, my friends, which is kind of glorious, yeah. okay? I mean, you know, 90% of the genius there is just executional perfection at its height. But the end line, I do not always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis, is just a fantastic fantastic kind of end line because obviously you know it's completely in keeping with what the man would say you know he's not mm. going to hold the thing up to the camera and go i recommend dos equis and it's this again it's this glorious obliquity you know it's the thing you can only say obliquely you can't say directly and i think you know this is the real value of creativity which is exactly that there is a whole solution set which suddenly becomes available to you when you acknowledge that problems can be tackled obliquely rather than directly. And there's a book I always recommend to creatives called Obliquity by John Kay, who's a kind of economist and general polymath. But he makes exactly the same point that actually, in many cases, the way to solve a problem is a second order, third order intervention. Uh, there's a great post actually on LinkedIn today about customer service where there are a whole lot of people who had one of those insurance products where uh, your watch and your you get given a free Apple watch. And if you maintain a certain exercise regime, you don't have to pay for the watch and you get uh, money back on your insurance. Hmm. And it didn't credit him for the whole month of October. OK, 
And he goes online and the whole website experience is a complete disaster. But they have a website which is Claim Your Missing Points, which suggests that this problem is not unknown. And eventually gets someone on the phone who says, no, if you don't open the app every two weeks, your insurance app, not your iPhone app, uh, it won't log the points. OK, it just assumes you've gone dormant. Oh, may well. Hmm. And so, as he said, you know, there was this whole problem solving apparatus that had been created around claim your missing points, which really was attributable to a problem slightly further upstream. And mm. so this this question of going, most people go, we need to do X, therefore we'll make the train faster or we need to solve capacity. Therefore, we'll make the trains bigger and more frequent or whatever it is. Mm. OK. You know, we need to we need to solve range anxiety. So we're going to increase the range of electric cars by making the batteries bigger. And alongside that mode of reductionist, rational decision making, which bureaucrats feel very, very comfortable with because it's all kind of metrics based. OK, yeah. there's a completely parallel field of decision making, which opens up whole new vistas of problem solving, which is effectively let's look at this differently. And my great rant is not that engineers are a waste of time. I mean, an example of, of commercial innovation I was going to give is solar panels, right? Because currently the way you buy solar panels is you go and write a check for £25,000 to someone you've never heard of. And then you install a load of unremovable things all over your roof. And then you pray to God that your local electricity provider will actually credit you for the electricity you pay in. All right? Yeah. Now, the way to sell solar panels, I would argue, is to sell them in a modular way. Give it a try with a £2,000 set of two panels, say. And then if you like what you see, install some more, mm. right? You know, that that's a classic Netflix-type problem, which is actually it's a, it's a commercial innovation problem. It's, not a, it, it's no longer, you know, now don't get me wrong, loads of brilliant engineers did fantastic work making solar panels a lot better. A lot of Tesla people did brilliant work making batteries provide better energy storage, faster charging, other things like that. They're all important. But ultimately, the final problem you've got to solve is the psychological one. And yet, no consideration is given to that last hurdle until the race is halfway through that's that's the fundamental problem you know mm. and so you've got a lot of people who have practiced jumping over low hurdles and then when they come to the final hurdle they kind of hand over to the marketing people and go your problem now that's not <laughs> the way to do it it's foresight isn't it yeah and actually the best ideas are ideas which are designed effectively um, not necessarily, by the way, they're designed with a very clear audience in mind, N not necessarily, however, on the assumption that that audience is the only people you need to target. And, you know, I, 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 I've recently been on, on LinkedIn talking about the Moxie hotel chain, which is one of a number of hotels that really interest me. I don't know if you've ever stayed at one, but mm. if you've got a one or two night stay and you, you know, you want to be near, I don't know, Milan airport or Lausanne mm -hmm. or somewhere, they're kind of low cost hotels, but they do one thing. You know, all the stuff like the Wi-Fi and the TV is really good. The bed's really comfortable. There isn't even a wardrobe in your room. You hang your clothes on a kind of lattice work on the on the wall. Um, the room's quite small. Okay, there's much of a desk. Okay, there's a kind of vestigial desk. But downstairs is like a 24-hour coffee shop, bar. Uh, you know, there's a shop selling toothpaste and all the shit you forgot to pack. You know, again, open 24 hours. You don't check in with a, at a check-in desk. You check in at the bar and they give you a complimentary drink some of the time. Mm. And so it's that what I call is do everything efficiently and then be brilliant at one thing, mm. which is a really, really interesting model because, you know, you actually think, well, you know, um, funny enough, I just had an operation in Lausanne. So having had a general anesthetic or no, a sedation, I've been under sedation. And so obviously I sort of woke up at three in the morning and sort of wandered down for a coffee it suddenly occurred to me, you know, a five-star hotel probably wouldn't be able to actually serve you a coffee and, you know, at a table at three in the morning. Yeah. You know, and so that business of just, okay, all the things, you know, the, you know, the two or three things you really care about and none of the stuff you don't is just a really interesting way to innovate. And I think it's an interesting market because it's kind of, it's what I call the, the premium economy of kind of any category. Mm. I, I think there's an opportunity to take that thing and effectively go, what's the equivalent of that with trains? What's the equivalent of that with coach travel, you know, mm. et cetera?
And I, you know, I, I you know, I, I think it's just a really, really clever approach, which and deserves more investigation. Does actually the the this week's arrival of or launch of the Uber trains campaign? Does yes. That, does that do much to to innovate that category? So we we don't have that here. You get ten percent off, I think. I haven't explored it yet. I haven't booked a train on Uber trains. I might do that today, actually, just to see how it works. Um, uh, but um, uh, it's a really, it's a really, really interesting idea. I'm, I'm intrigued to know why they're doing this. It may be partly that um, you know, you it's a great way to resist legislation if you become a general travel app rather than purely a a, a car based app. Yeah. Um, equally, you know. Uh, so that's one interesting question. You know, do you are they diversifying partly to duck the risk of regulation? I don't know. I don't know what the strategy is behind that and how much profit you can make. But it's certainly interesting. I mean, there there are these whole businesses in the UK. We have the trainline.com. And as I said, it's really an interface business. You know, you pay an extra pound for your rail ticket, but in return, you can be confident you've got the lowest price because they'll actually give you split tickets and things. And you'll also uh, you also basically have a much easier user interface, ticket delivery system, app, etc. Mm. And you know, the, I think those businesses are very interesting. You know, the, which are basically I'm paying money here because I like the interface. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think it's hard. It's hard for us over here to understand the trains in the UK. I used to live in the UK no. for a while, and I got a good glimpse. I was in Cambridge, and I remember I tried to go up to Edinburgh one weekend, and uh, the booking, the change in pricing as the days go on. Oh God, here yeah, it's all yeah. flat rate. So it's like, this is like price this, this, this. And I remember trying to explain it to someone. I remember I I got caught. I was like, okay, well, that's the price. I went online and was like, okay, the price of the ticket say is 50 pounds. And I was like, yeah. okay, I'll buy it at the station the next day. And then, and then you showed up at the station. Said, and it's it's like 124 yeah. pounds. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. the yeah. fuck is this? <laughs> it was crazy. So a lot of Irish people can't comprehend what the train system is like in the UK. Which Sorry, is ironic, Matt. since with Ryanair, you kind of... I know, it. right? We, we, <laughs> no, no, no. we, we get it, right? <laughs> but it's like trains. Sorry. It's like, oh, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, it's it's. I, I think this is going to be really interesting to see what this Uber trains actually yeah, does. Yeah. You have now encouraged me. I will go and book my train into London, which I have to I have to travel in this afternoon. And I will book it on Uber trains. And I'll get back to you and let you know. That's yeah. a, that's going to be our claim to fame that we were the impetus for Roy Sutherland to book his first, first Uber, Uber train. Exactly. Uh, Let's give it a go. Roy, absolutely it, fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on I, I Love That Ad. Um, one final shout out. Do you want to uh, talk about uh, or shout out to Nudstock or any initiative that you want to let? Yes, I mean Nudstock will be in. Uh, uh, we hope to do a New York one as well. It will be in mm-hmm. something like uh, June, I think, uh, next year. Um, there's also something I do as a shout out, which is if anybody wants to do a kind of 10 part course with live surgery sessions every couple of weeks uh, on this kind of thinking, then I can recommend a thing called Mad Masters on which I appear, um, which, uh, you know, if you want effective, more encouragement for essentially injecting oblique psychological solutions into your systemic problem rather than attempting to sort of improve things uh, by improving the individual parts in the hope that that will improve the sum of the parts the whole okay um then i think i can wholeheartedly recommend that course fantastic well thank you so much for, for joining us if anyone was listening and wants to see those ads go to workwithfo.e forward slash podcast where you can see it in all your all its glory there but until next time perfect bye Fantastic. It's been a joy. Anytime.